That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. This is the Postmortem Podcast, and I'm Mick Garris. What scares you? Spiders? Monsters? Serial killers? Killer clowns? Killer kids? Mustard gas? Ghosts, graveyards, things that go bump in the night, bug-eyed monsters from outer space, the unknown, love, sex, a creep with a gun, a president without a conscience. Whatever is your greatest fear, chances are you are not alone. Fear is universal. Your own fear is personal, but our jobs as the people who write and produce and direct horror films, television, and novels is to tap into that fear, to find that place deep under the skin that allows you to feel it and hopefully to fight it. When I was a kid, I saw an old movie on television that had a scene in it that haunted me for years. It had a snake crawling up a wall and into an open bedroom window late at night. It gave me the creeps, and for years I thought it was called The White Snake, and I never saw it again. Well into adulthood one afternoon while playing TV roulette, I came across that scene again, totally unexpectedly. It wasn't really all that much like I remembered it, and it was in a cheesy little Universal International programmer from the 1950s called Cult of the Cobra. Not scary at all, and, if I'm to be honest, not particularly good either. But the power of that image, the snake crawling inside the bedroom window, still had me in its thrall. Fear and horror tap into that part of us that isn't ruled by reason and intellect, and those who are drawn to horror usually discover it in their youth and never grow out of it. The imagery goes far beyond real, and it grabs you by the cerebral cortex and literally never lets you go. Fear is immortal, and picking the scabs of those fears might seem to be, well, a little bit sadistic, but let's just call it a public service. It's a lot cheaper, if a bit less effective, perhaps, than psychoanalysis, right? Horror is personal, and the creators of the best, most successful horror films create from the heart. Paranormal Activity is one of the most successful horror franchises in recent years, and it began in the most organic of ways, when writer-director Oren Pelly had his own dark imagination piqued by personal experience. Were you into movies as a kid? I, I was, and it wasn't in a sense that I ever thought I was going to be a filmmaker, because back then uh, in Israel, I mean, even now, the, the film industry is not uh, really something that anyone can think of, you know, I can become a filmmaker. A few people do, but back then... I just loved watching movies. So whenever I would get a chance through my childhood and especially later in my uh, teen years when uh, the, the first uh, blockbuster came to Israel, it might have not even been blockbuster, but some other, you know, VHS rental place, I would just consume as many movies as I possibly could. So I've definitely always been a, a film fan. Really? So what do you remember being the movie that kind of captured your imagination in the beginning? I mean, there's, there's been a lot. I think that uh, movies like, uh, you know, the, the popular ones like uh, E.T. Uh, at, at, at My Day, Star Wars, uh, Indiana Jones, those kind of films definitely had a, a large uh, impact on me. So were you drawn to the horror genre uh, 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 in an early time? 
Not not particularly, but uh, one of the movies that had the most impact on me was uh, when I was about 11. I don't know what my parents were thinking, but after I bugged them, they let me watch The Exorcist. <laughs> and I couldn't even make it through half the movie. I had <laughs> nightmares for, for weeks after that. And it traumatized me for the rest of my childhood. I couldn't watch anything that had anything to do with ghosts, demons, hauntings. Even when Ghostbusters came out, I couldn't watch it because I was <laughs> so traumatized. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I said, okay, let's go back and revisit those movies. And uh, then I kind of got back into watching those kind of supernatural uh, haunted films. Do you have a particular embrace of, of that genre or is it one of many genres? Uh, just you love film in particular, horror film or? or... Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily just a, a horror film fan. I mean, I do like good horror films, but I like any kind of film. I like good dramas, comedies, you know, whatever. So uh, I'm not particularly just into horror films. So what age did you come to the United States? I was 19. So you were pretty much an adult uh, as you came here with your family? No, just uh, by myself with a friend. Okay. Well, you came to film from a very unusual background. You were a computer programmer. Yeah, like I said, you know, the whole idea of becoming a filmmaker was so out of reach that it never even crossed my mind. Uh, so I got into computer programming and, and I wrote a, a graphics program when I was back in Israel and it did pretty well. And then I came to the States and I worked for a long time as a, a video game programmer. And uh, yeah, and, and I wasn't even thinking about becoming a filmmaker until 1999, where I snuck out of work to watch uh, a sneak peek of uh, the Blair Witch Project. Ah, okay. Well, that certainly seems to have informed you. That was, I mean, there had been found footage films before, but that suddenly sparked off the amazing possibilities, commercial possibilities of a film that cost next to nothing that grossed $100 million. So this seems to be a great entree into the film business is a found footage film and paranormal activity has the polish of a feature film and yet the concept of a found footage film and this came out of your own dreams or, or you moved into an apartment on your own and uh, yeah so so first of all just to go back to to Blair Witch it, it there were a few things that impacted me about Blair Witch one was the found foot footage nature which I thought was genius I'm like how come no one thought of this before and yeah later when I did my research I saw that there has been other movies of that style but no one and none that has succeeded to the degree of Blair Witch also how effective it was in the sense of you can show very little and just by having a slow burn and building the atmosphere and letting the audience's imagination play play tricks on them you can create a much more effective horror film than one that you know throws blood you know in your face all the time mm -hmm. and i thought yeah you know here's these kids from florida who have no connections to hollywood they barely had any money and they made a movie it's like it never occurred to me that you can just buy a video camera and shoot a movie <laughs> i thought you had to you know have your connection and go to film school and work your way up and get a studio to approve the movie and so that planted the first seed so now a cut to about four years later and I moved to, this is the first time I lived in a house. I, I bought a house in San Diego. And up, to, up until that point, I've always lived in apartments, even growing up in Israel. And uh, through my time in California, after I moved here, I always just rented apartments. So in a house, you become a lot more conscious of every sound that you hear. Mm -hmm. You're out there in suburbia. And, you know, in an apartment building, you hear people closing doors. You hear people walking in the hallway. 
when you're in a house in quite, quite suburbia, you don't expect to hear anything going on at night. So we had a few things where we would hear like noises and it turns out it was just the an ice cube dropping in the, you know, the ice maker in the fridge. <laughs> and you, you hear like, you know, creaking going on and it, it's probably just the, the temperature changes making the wood in the house creak. And uh, my girlfriend at the time was always convinced there's something here. There's something in the house. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm always the skeptic. I'm more like Mika. I'm like, there's got to be a rational explanation. And uh, there have been a few things that we didn't know how to explain. There, there was one incident where we heard this loud series of bangs coming from inside the house. It was definitely coming from inside. You can tell the difference. And it woke us up in, I don't know, it was 2 or 3 a.m., whatever. And we're like freaked out. I think there was like someone... Who broke into the house? We look all around. We can't find anything out of place. And it wasn't until a couple of days later when, when we realized what happened. We had one of those huge Costco the laundry detergents, you know, the, like the really big ones that has a spigot at the bottom, and it sits on a shelf in our laundry room, and it always is pushed all the way to the back, so only the spigot is like you know uh, exposed. And somehow uh, it fell onto the laundry machine and bounced off on the door. And then I think be, probably back at the laundry machine and on the floor, and it was behind the door. So when we looked around, we couldn't see it. It wasn't until we actually were trying to do laundry, and we're like, where's the laundry detergent? And <laughs> then we realized, and we kind of simulated banging it on the laundry machine. Like, yeah, that's probably what we heard. So I don't know how to explain It had happened. to have been pushed all the way forward. I don't know. Or maybe one of us accidentally just didn't put it all the, push it all the way against the wall and was just kind of teetering on it, which we would never do, especially when it was mostly full. And again, my girlfriend's like, you know, there's got to be something here. And I'm like, that's, that's ridiculous. And I started thinking, well, in today's technology, anyone can afford to buy a video camera. We're like, what if we bought a video camera? Because she thought there's like something or someone walking around the house, set it up and just let it record all night and then watch the footage, see if anything happened. And then I thought, how absolutely terrifying would it be to watch footage of yourself while you're asleep and unaware of something and and see that there's evidence of something happening that you didn't even know about. So that was kind of like the the origin of the idea. Well, we talked in the open a little about fear being universal. You knew you were tapping into something that everyone could identify with, the the noises in the house and the imagination of that. Yes, and and, and it's a little bit more than it's like the the vulnerability of being helpless while you're asleep. I mean, if you think about back in, in caveman days, you could be you know, asleep in your cave and having a nice dream and suddenly a tiger comes in and kills you <laughs> before you had a chance to figure out what's going on. So you you were never really ever safe. Now in modern society, you do have the sense of safety because you're in your house and no one's supposed to be there and you have an alarm. But if something or someone does violate your, your private space at night, that's a very disturbing thought. Mm. Now, you, you said you, you described yourself as a skeptic. Do you believe in ghosts or spirits? I do not. I'm, I, um, you know, I've done a lot of research and uh, I am, you know, I'm waiting for the evidence, for the <laughs> concrete evidence, and then maybe I'll change my mind. But until then, I'm more of a, of a realist. I'll, I judge things based on available evidence. I'll take your side on that one. <laughs> I've made a lot of ghost stories myself, and 
I would love to be convinced of something in the ether there, but I haven't seen it yet. Um, so how was the process? Once you decided I can make a feature film, how did you go about recruiting your cast and crew and, 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 uh, designing the whole thing? Did you go out and read screenplays for format, uh, ideas or, or, or to know how to structure it or how did you make this homemade movie? Well, first, I mean, the process from that point of kind of thinking about the idea of, you know, maybe it'll be creepy to have this, you know, nighttime footage of yourself sleeping until I actually thought, let's do this for real. There was probably in about two, one or two years have gone by and I kind of was just toying with the idea and thinking about different scenes and thinking, you know, what can I actually do with this idea. And from the point that, that I thought, maybe I'll actually try to make a movie. Then I had to do a lot of homework. I had to do a lot of research on the subject matter itself, hauntings, demonic hauntings, uh, possessions, because I wanted to be as authentic as possible. And I had to do a lot of uh, uh, training. Okay, how do you become a filmmaker? How do you edit a movie? How do you go about casting? All that kind of stuff. I, I didn't know any of that. And I knew that I wasn't going to try to do everything the traditional way, so I can kind of make my own rules whenever I can but uh, I had to uh, figure out can I edit a movie can I do the visual effects can I do the sound mix so I bought a computer I got a software and I actually shot a few scenes uh, for example there's a I actually found the footage a while back of me dragging a big teddy bear off the bed and then trying to apply the visual effects to see can I actually get away with it will it look realistic for the you know the, the bed dragging scenes and stuff like that uh, once I've uh, kind of convinced myself, okay, maybe, maybe I can go ahead and do it. Um, I didn't really have a script ever. I had my own weird format, uh, beat sheet type of, type of a thing mm -hmm. that had color coded, uh, technical notes. This is where I use wide angle lens. This is when I use this type of audio and that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, fascinating. And I didn't let anyone see it. Like the actors never saw it. So they never had a script to work from? Was never. it impro improvised dialogue? Yeah, everything was improvised. And um, yeah, and, and the casting, that's, I always told myself that I'm not going to green light the movie in, in my own head unless I have the kind of actors that can pull it off. Right. So a, a lot of it was really theoretical until I found Katie and Mika. And when I saw how amazingly well they, and, and I posted the, a few months ago their uh, audition tapes, which are amazing. And once I saw them together, I'm like, wow, this could actually work because these guys are so amazing. And then I'm like, okay, now full, full speed ahead. And was it in your own house? Yeah, yeah, which made it much easier because I could take my time. I can do a lot of uh, tests. Uh, you know, I did my own, uh, 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 I was my own DP. So I could do a lot of lighting tests and mm, this doesn't look right. Okay, now it looks better. I did a lot of uh, work on the house. Uh, we replaced the carpets with hardwood floors. Uh -huh. We changed the banisters in the stairwell. I, I mean, I did a lot of things to make the house look better. Financing your own home, home improvement. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and I, I don't consider any of that part of the budget for the movie because that's stuff that made the house look better anyway. <laughs> so this was in San Diego. I went to San Diego State. I lived there as well. I went to El Cajon High School, and, and so that was my home. So seeing this taking place in a San Diego home was kind of personally exciting for me, which was a great part of it. But how did you? You taught yourself everything. You shot it. You directed it. You wrote it. You edited it. You did visual effects. You cast it. So this was, you were kind of a one-man band. You had... The crew was basically you positioning these cameras in their security positions, 
Uh, yes. Now, I will say that there were two other crew members, my girlfriend at the time, because she kind of didn't have a choice. And, you know, we're going <laughs> to shoot a movie in the house. You're yeah. not going to be able to sleep in your bed, so you might as well help me. And my best friend, the one I came with to the States with, edit of known since I was 13, uh, his name is Amir. And we were working together. So I told him one day, after I've already bought the camera, I'd done some tests. I'm like, uh, I think I'm going to shoot a movie. And I told him the story and uh, I asked him, do you want to help? He's like, sure, it sounds like fun, but I don't know anything about filmmaking. And I said, perfect, neither do I. <laughs> so, and he's the kind of guy who's like very resourceful. So he helped with uh, creating the, some of the props and, and uh, the stunts and that kind of stuff. And the only other thing that I couldn't figure out is how to do makeup because I wanted to do it all on my own. Right. And I bought a makeup kit, kit and I did some tests and just could never get it right. So ah. I had to hire a, a makeup girl to do a couple of the, the makeup uh, effect shots. That's great. So... What was your intention? You know, what were you going to do once you finished the movie? I mean, you you have a background in in computer programming, a very technical kind of figure out how to do this in a technical sense, step by step. But now here you've, you're making this movie, which is a combination of left and right brain working hand in hand and you got the cast together well first of all how did you get the cast together where did you find them i simply held auditions that, that's what was one of those uh, things i had to research on the internet how do you hold the casting session <laughs> so uh, i went to la and i found some theaters and i checked out the theaters and i negotiated a deal how much would it be to rent the theater for the day and i know it was 200 bucks and i posted ads in uh, their usual places craigslist and backstage and la casting wow and people contacted us and sent the headshots and and, and I selected the ones that I wanted to see the audition. And the audition itself, it was very unusual because there were no sides, there was no script sent ahead. There was very little information. I said, you know, you're only going to get 500 bucks and I'm not going to tell you anything about the story. And <laughs> people would sit down and I would say, hi, so um, what makes you think your house is haunted? And if they hesitated or if they kind of seemed confused or if it didn't seem natural in their answer, then they would be immediately cut. Again, I should mention that I released the, the Katie and Mika casting auditions tapes and they're amazing because they didn't hesitate for a second. Wow. Katie's like, oh yeah, man, I, I've been hearing noises. She like didn't have to think about it for a split of a second and Sam, Sam was with Mika. So after that, I called them and a few other couples back for the callback auditions. And I told Katie and Mika, who just met 30 seconds earlier, uh, tell me, uh, how did you guys meet? Like, well, you know, we've been together for three years and they start going with all these stories and they're helping each other. They were very collaborative and it was just amazing to, to watch them. Because if you didn't know, you'd think they're like a real couple telling the truth. Wow. Where, where can we see those tapes? Uh, I put it on my on my uh, YouTube. On your oh, YouTube. Okay. Yeah. You you have a YouTube channel that's open to the public. Yes. Great. Okay, so it's all been instinctive. You've taught yourself how to do this. You're making this movie. You found the cast. You found out every way to approach the technical aspects, the casting. You've devised a storyline, if not exactly written a script. Now you've got a finished movie. What did you? do with it what was your plan so uh, the plan was to I, I did i tried a couple of things i contacted a few uh, independent producers and was rejected by by all and i also submitted to festivals and was rejected by all oh my god except i even i even applied to the san diego film fest which i thought okay san diego i'll have a chance because i'm a local filmmaker yeah. and it was shot in san diego they've got gotta throw me a bone here and <laughs> the, the only one that uh, accepted us was scream fest really yeah 
So and, that was where it premiered, was at ScreamFest. Yes, and, and that's what really changed everything because we got uh, incredible reactions, great press, and uh, we won a couple of awards. And the day after the award show, I get a call from CAA. So I get uh-huh. a call from an agent and... From that point, uh, yeah, that was kind of like the turning point. Well, the turning point was quite a turning point because this, what was it, about a $15,000 budget that you'd put into it? Um, Suddenly, DreamWorks, Steven Spielberg's company, (laughs) wants to take it and distribute through Paramount. But there were going to be some changes made to make it, I guess, more commercial. Tell me uh, that process of of suddenly being thrust into the big studio world um, where they're going to put it on thousands of screens, your little labor of love that you homemade yourself, and suddenly you're in the big leagues. Yeah, this was definitely uh, sometimes uh, challenging, sometimes surreal, um, there were situations where we definitely had some some battles about creative things. Um, some things I didn't object to. They, you know, there was actually a lot of cool ideas. They wanted to kind of trim the cut a little bit here and there, and and you know, I thought a lot of it was was very beneficial. And we did have some a lot of dis- a lot of discussions about uh, the ending. That the original ending, which uh, if anyone's seen it, that's the one where the cops enter and end up uh, shooting Katie. Uh, that wasn't a huge hit with the audience. <laughs> Some people loved it, but they wanted to find something a little bit more, um, uh, you know, that that will be more universally loved. Right. So uh, we tried a few different ideas, and then uh, the idea that finally uh, is in the final cut, we we simply tested. It. I I wasn't a huge. I thought it was effective, but I wasn't a huge fan of it initially. But it played so well against audiences that uh, I know. Yeah, it doesn't matter what I'm going to say now. That's that's going to be the the new ending. Right. Well, you had made the film and completed it and and com- considered it the finished film. So how did that feel when suddenly we love your movie, but it's not the greatest feeling, and I tried <laughs> to fight for for my ending. But you know, at the end of the day. The movie did work as a whole with the new ending. I've I've learned to embrace and love the new ending. I still <laughs> prefer my ending, but I'm totally yeah. okay with uh, with the new ending. Uh, much of it is because I've been to a lot of screenings and seen what an amazing reaction it gets from the audience. So I can definitely admit that it's very effective. So this became not only effective but hugely successful and launched a franchise. Um, so your involvement. As the creator in this franchise, you directed the second one as well, right? No. Or you only directed the first one, but you Correct. co-wrote the second one? Not no. really. I, oh. m- my goal after making the, the first one was kind of like, you know, after you won the lottery, do you go back to the factory the next day? <laughs> so I'm like, thank you. I'm out of here. And if you want to make more sequels, good luck. Just remember what, where to send the royalties. Right. <laughs> and uh, then I kind of got sucked into the second one because there were a lot of problems and they, they got into some dead ends with the story. So I kind of got sucked back into it and became a lot more involved than originally planned. And from that point, uh, I had some level of involvement, but... I wouldn't call it that I would have a lot of creative control. I would have, I would be one of about 10 voices in the room. So you have, you know, a few people from the studio, executives, the studio president, you have the writer, you have the, the director or directors, you have other producers. So you have a lot of people and sometimes they would listen to my suggestions. A lot of them they want. And, um, and that's totally fine with me. Right. So, um, was it Jason Blum who acquired the film originally? 
Well, he didn't acquire. We, uh, he was brought on to help um, you know, uh, find a distributor. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah. Okay. And so I would imagine that this huge success and with Jason's involvement led to you being put together with James Wan and Lee Juanel in the Insidious franchise. Yes, that was very early on. I think right after Paranormal Activity was out, a CAA had this idea of creating a new kind of micro horror label where we can use the name Paranormal Activity so we can say and partner with other film like so we can say from the people who brought you so or from Rom Zombie and the people who brought you Paranormal Activity and create a few micro budget films and that's how uh, we met with uh, James Wan and Lee Wanell who had the the very cool idea for Insidious. And what was your contribution to Insidious? Very minimal. Just just uh, <laughs> your name. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. I mean, I I gave a few notes on this on the screenplay. I gave a few notes on the on the cut, but uh, it was all you know, James and and Lee's uh, vision. Well, another unlikely combination is Oren Pelly and Rob Zombie. Was that the same kind of situation? Did you have more involvement, less involvement? Maybe even a little bit less. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so again, the creator of mm-hmm. paranormal yeah, it was just activity. a marketing uh, situation. <laughs> So tell me about your experience as a director, because you've not done that much directing since. It seems like you would have been offered a ton of stuff. And is it a process that you don't really enjoy? Well, I like I said, originally, I kind of wanted to just kind of cash out and, and be done. But then <laughs> uh, I got sucked into doing the Paranormal Activity sequels, and I... Um, then I have lunch with Steven Spielberg, and he says, eh, let's do a TV show together. I'm like, okay, I'm not going <laughs> to say no to that. And, and we did the river. I didn't direct any of those, but I kind of kept having different opportunities to, to get me sucked back in. And then I thought, yeah, maybe, you know, I, I could uh, find something to, to direct. And I was sent a lot of scripts, and not many really spoke to me. There was one that I really loved. It was called Eliza Graves. Hmm. And uh, I thought I was going to direct it, and it ended up being a whole big legal mess and the project uh, fell through it ended up with lawsuits and stuff so that was one bad experience there was another project that i had that was a was very cool time travel found footage thing that was set up at warner brothers and we were dealing directly with the president of warner brothers he said i love it we're going to green light it and then that never happened so uh and there were so there were a few other things that just like almost happened and then uh, finally i i we found out that we're having a baby me and my girlfriend Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, that's my cue. I'm done, and <laughs> I'm just going to become a full-time dad. Wow. So do you enjoy the process of filmmaking? Some of it. I enjoy... The hours suck. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's it's very difficult. It's very time-consuming. It's very challenging. Depends on who you're working with. That's the, the biggest uh, thing. If you're working with a supportive crew, supportive producers, um, a studio, etc., and it can be the difference between having a blast and, you know, we're having a big party and we're shooting a movie or it just becomes a nightmare of fights and oh. and creative di- differences and you just want to kill yourself. Like, why did I get myself in this mess in the first place? Wow. And, and, I've, and I've been in, in both. Really? Well, I mean, the the family atmosphere of a gang that's working together and it works well has to be such a great experience. I know in my my situation. I, I, I love nothing more than to be in the thick of that whirlwind of creative people. I haven't really 
been in one of those battle zones that it sounds like you've been in as well. Yeah, yeah, I've had some, and I don't want to mention names too much or anything like that, but <laughs> okay. but there's been some situations that have been so miserable that I kind of wish I didn't even start with the project in the first place. Wow. And and uh, I, I know I'm not the only one in, in this industry. Who, no, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so it, it just came to the point of like quality of life, like why do I need this in my life? Like, Well, the success of paranormal activity allows you to be able to to be an island unto yourself if you need to. Yeah, if if I were to ever get back to filmmaking or directing, the only way I'll do it is if I can finance it on my own and can just do whatever I want. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But at least I did it my way and I had fun. Well, tell me about working in television, uh, doing The River and, and the concept of that. Was it always a limited series or was it hoped that it would become a series that continued on? Well, at the beginning, they didn't know. And that, that's another project that uh, I would say the people involved were most of them were great uh, but it just wasn't the right format for that kind of a show uh, maybe if we had to do it again now at Netflix or Amazon where we would have more creative freedom we would have a different result but it ended up being like we love this idea of having a very raw scary show but not too raw and it can be too scary it's still mm. network television and don't forget about uh, you know curses you can't really do those and can't right. show too much and we have commercial breaks so there was a lot I'm of things I'm familiar that, with these problems yeah <laughs> so there were, there were a few things that were kind of against us from the very beginning and and when it comes to kind of having raw found footage project film or tv it's kind of it's i see it as, as binary either you do it right or you don't do it at all you, you can't do it halfway and uh, you can't say i want to have a found footage movie that works really well but it needs to look uh, professional like a you know a real movie and you need to have real actors and they need to read lines it's uh, and they need to all be mic'd with you know professional microphone but then you end up with something that just feels so polished that there is no point in trying to pretend it's found footage. Right. And yet you don't want to do a VHS camcorder either. Yes. Yeah, so you have to kind of find the right. And, and I will say that I think with the Paranormal Activity franchise, we did find the right line of having a acceptable production quality that doesn't offend anyone in the audience, but still most of the time feels pretty authentic. Well, in the case of Paranormal Activity, when you did think you had a finished film and, and it did get acquired by DreamWorks and Paramount for distribution, the changes that were made, tell me uh, about that process, because I assume that you were now working on a studio level doing new mixes and sound effects and uh, visual effects, that sort of thing. Tell me about that process. That was way before that. That was sort of like uh, the very, before mixes or anything like that, that was the first thing that they needed to do to figure out, can we have an acceptable ending to move forward with the distribution? Mm -hmm. So they, they were sort of saying like, you know, if you don't get it right, we're not really going to distribute it. Uh -huh. Even okay. if they weren't saying that, you know, verbatim. So, yeah, so there were simply a lot of different ideas getting thrown and some of them I just, you know, really fought hard against. Some of them I said, okay, let's, let's try that. And, and we, we ended up trying a few ones, including the one, you know, with Mika flying at the camera, which ended up being the final one. And then you kind of look at it and say, hmm, that may actually kind of work. So does the found footage format appeal to you particularly as a filmmaker? Uh, as a filmmaker, I do like it. Uh, when it's done well, which uh, unfortunately is not always the case, 
But like one of, one of the fav- my favorite movies from recent years is What We Do in the Shadows. Oh, yeah. Which is, in my opinion, one of the best examples of how it's not really found footage. It's more, maybe you would call it a mockumentary. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But it's in the, along the same lines. Jermaine Clement and yeah, Taito. So they've done, they've done such a great job with that. So when I see a movie that's done that well, uh, it kind of re- restores my faith in, in found footage. But... Um, yeah, I've seen both great and not so great examples of it. Well, did you find yourself in in that flurry after the the sensation that paranormal activity became? Did you find yourself put into a horror ghetto or even more limiting a found footage horror ghetto? Not so much found footage, but definitely a horror like so- someone told me um as as like as, as a friendly advice, if I ever want to segue out of horror, you have to kind of take, you know, if several steps you can't just say now uh, the next thing i'm going to do is a romantic comedy mm-hmm. you have to do another horror one and maybe then you kind of transition to a crime thriller and then you do <laughs> yeah. a drama and because no one wants to see a romantic comedy from the people who brought you paranormal Par- <laughs> so and, it's it's a little bit of a process and yet there's a lot of relationship stuff in paranormal activity that shows you can pull that off Perhaps, uh, although I, once again, I'll give so much of that uh, a credit to Katie and Mika, who brought so much of their uh, chemistry to, to the film. But I, that was actually an important point for me to to make sure that we have a very believable relationship, um, so they they don't feel like a Hollywood movie couple. They feel like a real couple who annoy each other and you know pick on each other, but ultimately they do love each other and care for each other. But I, it was very important for me that they feel very real and credible. So, how much of the film? was not used were there a lot of scenes because of the improvisational nature of the movie i imagine there are is just tons and tons and tons of footage that did not end up in the final movie yeah there's there's both um entire scenes that we just shot and then just couldn't fit in the movie or sometimes we said you know what we're actually going to make some changes and reshoot and we no longer need that so there's entire scenes that are gone but also there's a lot of uh, things that uh, as part of the improvisational nature of the experiment and uh, we would try to do a scene a certain way and we would collectively or sometimes one of us would say that that didn't feel right let's try doing it another way and we just keep experimenting until we would get it so we have a lot of different uh, variations not even text just like different ways that we've done certain scenes and you were shooting it digitally so you could shoot hours and hours of footage without uh, it being expensive and and everyone had committed to doing the film for whatever it was without it costing more you weren't a part of unions or anything so that allowed you a great deal of creative freedom Absolutely. Uh, yeah, because we had to, you know, basically shoot around the clock. There's no way I could have done it either, even under SAG Indie. Um, mm-hmm. you know, because I was going to l- let them work all day and all night and there was no catering. Basically, they make their own <laughs> food and, and uh, here's bread and salami. Make a sandwich. Yeah, I, actually, when they arrived, I gave them a couple hundred bucks and sent them to Trader Joe's and said, you know, buy whatever you want. And that's what you're eating this week. <laughs> well, so you were uh, you had your catering by Trader Joe's. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. So what are the parts of the process that you most love? When it's done, like I said before, when it's done right and with the right people, it's all fun. Um, you know, the shooting, the shooting is the most stressful part. Probably I had the most fun, uh, in the post process when I was just editing everything and like, uh, you know, 
putting together a big puzzle piece, seeing it all come together and come to life. That, that was, a, a, of course, extremely time-consuming, but very rewarding to, to say, finally, after all the hard work and everything, it looks like it's kind of coming to better and th- together and there's like some element of magic in it. So do you feel like you're, you're very much a technician in the construction of a film? Um, there's a, the, it's both. It's both the technical aspect, but also on the creative level, you do have to pay attention to how does this particular cut make you feel compared to the cut from yesterday where I right. edit the scene or remove it. Do I suddenly feel that, um, you know, more strongly that this character is doing something wrong or is it uh, flowing well or is there, you know, something that used to be scary now it's not scary. So you kind of have to look at the big picture of the whole movie, how it makes you feel. So there is kind of like a marriage of the, the technical aspect and the creative aspect. Are there any movies that that you came close to doing that ended up not happening for you or with you that you regret? I don't regret anything. I, that one project, Eliza Graves, I, I do regret right. because I really, really loved it and I really wanted to do it. And it was very heartbreaking, heartbreaking when it didn't happen. The found footage um, time travel film, that's mm. something that I also really wanted to do and it just never happened. Is so, it something that you could do on your own? No, it's too big. Ah. It has to be done with, with the, you know, studio backing. But, um, there's been a lot of things that were offered to me earlier on that, uh, I was maybe involved in to some degree or didn't like the conjuring. And, uh, but I don't, I think like, you know, in that example, James did such a fantastic job. Yeah. I don't, my version of it would have been different. I don't know if it would have been as good or better or, or what, but I never go back to think like, um, you know, I should have done that. So I, I, I'm, Thankful enough for everything that has worked uh, well so far. What would draw you back to the director's chair? At this point, I would have to be incredibly, incredibly bored (laughs) (laughs) to the point that uh, like maybe after my kids all go to school and I find myself with nothing to do and I'm involved now uh, in, uh, I'm back in the technology uh, field. So that keeps me busy. So if I have nothing at all going on, maybe, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. So you don't have a hunger to make movies right now. You, uh, if, and and in the traditional filmmaking sense, can you see yourself working with a, a director of photography and a, a you know all these great crew people that you don't get when you're making found footage films? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've been in, uh, on a lot of sets of my films and and saw how well. A, a good crew can function and I was thinking to myself oh because when I started paranormal activity I didn't even know what are the different positions I'm like oh you can have a guy that actually you know does the lighting for you how cool is that <laughs> you can have a guy dealing with all the sound stuff so you don't have to worry about it that's and continuity awesome. yeah. yeah all that kind of stuff that's all <laughs> makes, makes your life so easy um, so I would absolutely work with, with a good crew um, but uh, yeah at this point I just don't have uh, I will have to love something so much that I'm going to give up my peaceful life now and have to go back to the crazy world of directing and then you have to deal with all the producer and studio types which i'm very happy not to have to deal with these days <laughs> so so there's nothing that that you want to do maybe on your own as you talked about the only way you'd go back into it is if it were something that was self-financed and all of that you, the, you're not working on ideas to do that no i mean i have just ideas that pop into my head but i'm not working on them it's like yeah maybe later yeah. exactly <laughs> eh, why bother okay well you have gone back into the tech world which birthed you uh, uh, and uh, tell me about Spot. What is Spot? 
Uh, so about a couple of years ago, uh, or maybe a little bit more, when I decided I'm done with filmmaking and I'm just going to stay at home, uh, I thought of this idea for an app that uh, simply lets people uh, find or create local events, sort of uh, like if you know uh, Meetup, uh, but in a much easier way. In, in Meetup, you have to kind of create uh, a group and people have to join the group and it becomes like a part-time job. So here you can simply say, who wants to, I'm looking for someone to play tennis with tomorrow, or uh, let's get a group together, uh, like a singles group and go check out the new movie opening uh, this weekend. So that's the basic premise. And the idea is that there's a lot of people who are new in town or that are in different stages of life. They're looking for things to do. They're looking for uh, people to meet. And uh, so that was the, the idea. So you can simply uh, launch the app, look at what's going on, join an existing event, or create your own event. Well, tell me some movies within the genre that maybe you've seen and perhaps wished you had made. Is there anything like that? No, because I, I never think that way. Because I think if I would have made it, it would have been a different movie. Mm -hmm. So, and I don't, and if it's a movie that I really loved, I, I think, well, obviously they did something right. Maybe if I did a movie, it wouldn't have worked as well. <laughs> or maybe better. Who maybe knows? better. Who knows? But I'm happy to leave it alone. Do you think you have a specific point of view as a filmmaker, either a philosophy on filmmaking or, or views that you want to put across to an audience? I mean, the, the style that I really like is the the style that, uh, not necessarily found footage, but the the style that goes for ultra realism. Uh, if you think of movies like Traffic. Mm -hmm. So it's... We don't say it's found footage, but it kind of feels like a documentary. And there's something about it that, to me, makes me connect with it a lot more than something that's kind of too slick and overly produced. Or when it comes to dialogue, when people uh, always mention uh, uh, each other's name, like during this conversation, how many times did I say Mick? Or how many times did you <laughs> right. say? People don't do it in real life, but in movies, like let me tell you, Mick. Yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly. And do kind of like this exposition that's so on the nose uh, so those kind of films or like recently I saw Bone Tomahawk I don't know oh, if you've yeah. seen that and yeah. again that was such an example of how a movie can do something in such a minimalistic way that's so effective now you could say well maybe that's why it didn't do so well commercially mm -hmm. maybe a fair point but for me as, as an audience that's, that's the kind of stuff that uh, I really like stuff that just feels very raw and authentic so if you were granted the opportunity to do anything you wanted if a studio said we want you to make an Oren Pelly film, maybe the only film you'll make for the rest of your life, and we will finance it, we'll do it your way, what would that movie be? Uh, again, assuming that I'm decided that I'll direct again. <laughs> yes. Uh, I do, I do <laughs> and have, you could work eight-hour days. <laughs> I, do, I do have an idea. Uh, it's, it's a biography. It would be a biography of someone, uh, but I'm not going to mention more than that. Because who knows, maybe many, many years down the line, I'll have the opportunity to do it. But uh, there's no way it will happen now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, great. Well, I really appreciate you coming and joining us on this. And, um, you know, I know you don't do a lot of interviews, so I really appreciate the time and what a great life you have i can't complain <laughs> great thank you thanks for listening to postmortem with mick garris download new episodes every other wednesday and subscribe on itunes
Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.